0: Namo Aitasa Bhagavad-gurārātura samāsaṃ bhutāsa. Namo Aitasa Bhagavad-gurārātura samāsaṃ bhutāsa. Namo Aitasa Bhagavad-gurārātura samāsaṃ Buddha-dham-dham-sangham-namāsāmi. So I wanted to speak this evening about the faces of suffering and the tools for dealing with it. See if any of it resonates. So one of the reasons why I wanted to do the chanting that we did to begin with was because there's a lot in there that already talks about, you know, the manifestations of the different kinds of suffering. So, you know... um, the first noble truth is, is that there is suffering. And this is not kind of a, like a sour grapes, wet blanket religion. It's, it's just a, it's a common, um, common experience that there's suffering in this world. And, you know, it's often the case that we forget that there's more than one noble truth so we can get a little bit fixed on that one truth. But it also can be true that we don't, we don't focus or we don't pay attention to it, and we think that if we don't pay attention to it, then it's going to go away. And that doesn't seem to be a, a, a useful remedy either. So the teaching is, is, is that if we understand what suffering is and we bring our attention to it in a skillful way, then that supports being able to understand the cause and then the cessation of suffering. And then the path which supports the station of suffering can be cultivated in order that we can have the capacity to do this work. So we open to suffering in order to understand it, to see what the cause of its suffering is, and then so that it can release. So when we're practicing with compassion, you know, the compassion moves towards suffering stays present with suffering, quivers in the presence of suffering. And so it's helpful just to get a feeling for the different faces or the different expressions of how suffering manifests. So when we're looking at the classicalness of suffering, you know, the classical teaching is is that birth is suffering and aging is suffering. And I don't remember my birth, so I can't tell you if my birth was suffering or not. You know, but when I look at the process of getting older, and I can see, you know, the difference between, you know, my own ability to have a lot of vitality at will, and have skin that's tremendously elastic, and have a mind that's incredibly bright and remembers everything, and all of a sudden those things are not so all of a sudden, but gradually those things start changing, I can see that there's a a letting go process that comes with aging that uh, takes some getting used to. And it takes a lot of getting used to in our society that um, worships youth, worships the kind of young vitality, worships everything that's associated with youth. And so, you know, for any of us who's over the age of twenty-five, you know, we're stretched in our society to come to terms with the reality of our bodies as they get older and what that means and the that hair that grows in the places it's not supposed to, and the hair that falls out of the places that is supposed to, and the and the downward moving of the regular objects of the body and, you know, the kind of shape-shifting from hourglass to pear shape, and, and, you know, body functions that don't hold the way you want them to, you know, not being able to make it to the toilet in time, and, you know, it's, just, it's humiliating, especially when one identifies with it, you know, is this is who I am and this is what I am. And yet, what happens when a body is born is, is that it gets older, And so, you know, we think it's very sweet when babies are born and they turn into toddlers and then they turn into children and then they turn into adolescents. And then after that, it's all downhill. (laughs) But, you know, the aging of a body is one of the things that we need to wake up to. And for some people, it's more agonizing than others because there's greater sense of vulnerability around the change of identity it comes and yet if we don't have any sense of peace with our body getting older then it's an enormous place of suffering you know what happens when the hair is in the wrong place you know or falling out of the right place or you know all these things that happen or you know what happens when one can't hold one's bladder you know it can be an utterly humiliating ordeal but really what's happening is the body is just doing what a body does. And sometimes it holds it together and sometimes it don't. And it really ain't very personal, you know. But it's the identification with the whole process which makes it so painful and so embarrassing and so humiliating. So we have birth and we have aging and then we have death. And all of us, every single one of us, will pass through that gateway. And again, in our society, we think of death as the ultimate failure, you know, it's gone completely wrong, and yet, you know, the reality is, is is that with birth comes death, and it's as natural as as day following, following night, there's nothing whatsoever that's gone wrong. And our own relationship with death is also partly mirrored and conditioned by the way the society looks at it. Which is, is that it's hidden and it's, it's um, to be avoided at all costs. It's to be prevented at all costs. It's to be extended. You know, life is to be extended at all costs. And so, you know, to come into the right relationship with death is not an easy, not an easy process. And yet, it's a worthwhile endeavor to consider. And on a three-year retreat, you know, the Tibetan practices and on a three-year retreat. So with the death, uh, the census is that, you know, um, just something that we need to be able to recognize is something that we're going to each have to journey through. I was in Brazil a couple of winters ago, and at a healing place and one of the people who was at the center was a woman who had breast cancer and I just heard from her recently that the cancer has spread and that the, you know, she only has a couple months to live according to what the doctors have said. And the message from her was, this is that she feels very peaceful. Well, I mean, how many people do you know who are moving into terminal states of their illness, and the message that they say is is that they're very peaceful. And so it's a worthwhile reflection for each of us to consider, you know, how are we relating to all of this? Because it's going to come, and none of us know when. So on the last retreat that we had in Loveland, there was a woman who was 32 years old. She was on the retreat. And we got an email from somebody in the family a couple of months ago a month ago she was in a car accident and killed instantly it's like 32 years old she's here one day and she's gone the next it's like we don't know we really 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 don't know and so it's like well we think well this will we'll deal with it when we get there <laughs> but we have no idea when that getting there is going to be you know so sometimes it's useful to pick these themes up and look at them and contemplate and figure out what it's like. So what I was going to say was is that on a three-year retreat, which is uh, a, one of the things that they do in the Tibetan practice, they have three-year retreats. Like 70 to 80% of the practices that they do are in preparation for death. You know, just to make that absolutely alive. But that's the reality And when that becomes the reality, then we can begin to focus on what our priorities are in our life. When we don't think of that as the reality, then we don't necessarily have priorities in our life that are necessarily congruent. So there's birth, and there's old age, and there's sickness, and there's death. Sickness is a big one. Because again, in our society, we have this feeling that if something is not well, you know, we feel physically ill. It, we're a failure. And there's all kinds of New Age kind of ideology that suggests that, that that's absolutely the case. That if you're, if you're not practicing right, if you're not eating right, if you're not exercising right... So basically, if you're sick, it's your fault. You know. And yet, what it forgets is, is that even though there certainly are ways in which we can have control around our food and our exercise and the way we spend time meditating there are elements that are not in our control, in our body. And so we can be doing absolutely everything right and still get sick. And so the sickness is not a direct relationship of of our practice. There are ways in which there are elements of it which are out of control. And so that's another thing to work with. And so certainly working with physical pain or disability or sickness is a, is a, is a practice that requires... A lot of fortitude. And uh, you know, for myself, I haven't found an easy practice. So when I was in Anagarika the first year I was a novice at the monastery, I got chronic fatigue syndrome. And for the last, the, the next 19 years, it was something that I had to deal with regularly. And as somebody who is an incredibly energetic and excessively willful person, this was not good news. (laughs) And yet, I could see that by practicing with it, I came into a deeper understanding about a way of surrendering to something that was not will-based. That had I not had that sickness, I don't know what would have been required for me to get that understanding. Maybe a ten elephants sitting on me. I don't know what, but, you know. So, you know, it was obviously years of challenge and difficult mind states. And yet, through persevering with it and, and recognizing the opportunity that came with it, there were many blessings that came. And one of the blessings that came was a a deep appreciation for the power of devotion. Because, you know, I had come through meditation in a Vipassana scene where you sit and meditate and that's what you do and that's what practice is. And yet, having gone on pilgrimage to Asia and coming in contact with the power of devotion, you know, I could see that the, the whole of the practice could be embodied in bowing and chanting. The whole of it, it wasn't like it was some little tag-on thing that you did at the beginning or the end, because that's what you did in the monastery. But the entire expression of the practice could come in the form of bowing and chanting. And when you're struggling to sit up, you know, and your mind is like, you know, split-piece soup, you know, you can't find anything to kind of grab onto. Having direct access to practice, for me, was like a lifeline. I could always chant and I could always bow, no matter how sick I was. So, you know, there was something that came alive for me through that, that really made me appreciate the fullness of, of what happens in a monastery, which is very different from what is offered in a Vipassana retreat, in the normal setting. Because, you know, practice is not only just about sitting. It's about other things as well. So then there's the whole topic of having things that we don't want. You know. Having taxes that we don't want. Having people that we don't want. Having things grow that we don't want. And animals visit that we don't want. I mean, the list is endless. Things that we don't want. Having mind states that we don't want. You know? And so having to deal with what we don't want, there's this n- deep-seated feeling of, you know, get it, get it out of here. Get it away. If I could only get rid of what I don't want, then I'd be okay. And yet, the practice of of working with this stuff is to move in, to feel our way in, to begin to get a sense of what is this not wanting? What does that feel like? How do we know it in our body? And can we open to that not wanting and find some spaciousness around it, learn to relax through it and just let it Soften and ease out. So the not wanting is independent of the object that we don't want. It's the relationship to it. And so what we can find is, is that we can have something that's really extremely unpleasant. But when we start dismantling the not wanting around it, then our relationship with it begins to shift. And so the agitation dissipates, and the kind of tension dissipates, the stress around it dissipates, even if the thing itself hasn't dissipated. So, you know, one of the things I found really interesting is is the way our body energies can affect that. So the last year or two that I was living in the monastery in England, the stress levels were really pretty high. You know, what was going on in the community was difficult. My brother sent me a pair of running shoes. Actually, I was here in Colorado Springs, and he got me a pair. And I got me a book and downloaded a copy of, of the Couch Potato to 5K running program. And I started running. And, you know, I'm not a big runner. You know, I run 30 minutes. But I couldn't believe the difference. You run 30 minutes, and after 30 minutes of running, the whole world is completely different everything feels like it's manageable and nothing has changed. So you crank up the body system in a way where you're oxygenating and energizing, you get the endorphins going and you feel wonderful. You know, the situation was still as difficult as it was before I went running. But my relationship with it shifted. So it's not only that we have to work with things on a mental level. You know, we can work with things on an energetic level. And we can work with them in terms of all different kinds of tools to pick up and so that we're not having to stress as much as we normally do. So that was brilliant. He gets good brother points for those running shoes. Not having what we want. Is suffering. You know, all the things that we hanker for, long for, the projects to finish, the people that we love to be close to us, all of the things that we think, if we have only had that, then we would be all right. The health, the talent, the skill, the relationships, the family dynamics, the mobility, the affluence, the monetary security, the status, the privilege, the recognition, the respect, the things, the things, the things, the things. And yet, check it out, have they ever been the thing that's brought you happiness? So what we need to do is we need to begin to massage into that longing, the longing to have, the wanting. Begin to get familiar with that longing. And to begin to see that it's not by getting what we want that is the satisfaction but understanding that longing and coming into a new relationship with it you know what does it feel like to be in love and what does it feel like to just so deeply long for one's beloved you know the mind is absolutely focused on just that. It's not peaceful. And so as we begin to get a sense of how to nourish ourselves, how to bring care and attention to our heart and our body and our mind, then we have leverage points in addition just this natural inclination to follow what it is that we want. To move towards what we want. And to move away from what we don't want. And then it goes on to talk about the five aggregates of grasping our suffering. When we identify with our body, when we identify with the vedana, with the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling connected with contact, when we identify with perception, with mental formations or consciousness, then that leads to suffering. So the body has its own nature. Feelings come. Can you control them? No. What happens if you identify with them? This is a good feeling. That's a bad feeling. I want this feeling. I don't want that feeling. Can I have this feeling? Can I get rid of that feeling? Then there's a kind of war inside of us between the things that we think are okay and the things that we think are not okay and how do we keep the ones that are okay and get rid of the ones that are not okay. And and there's this tension that goes on. And yet, feelings are feelings, and perceptions are perceptions. And all of that is something that arises in accordance with its own nature, and ends in accordance with its own nature. And our work is to come into right relationship with the whole catastrophe. The I-making, the me-making, the my-making, is where the suffering begins to coalesce when we take possession and ownership of something then that's the place where we start wanting to change what is and make it how we think it should be I mean I don't know that anybody experiences pangs of grief and despair when the leaves fall they do every year they fall but we don't own them So when they fall, it's something that we observe. It's part of nature. It's the natural cycle, particularly here in Colorado. But when we see our own leaves fall, we cry. I do. (laughs) (laughs) There's increase and decrease, increase and decrease, increase and decrease. It's nature. It's not that anything has gone wrong. And yet because there's some kind of ownership or possession over the increase and the sense of failure and something's gone wrong with the decrease, then when this natural cycle happens, we get upset with the one and excited by the other. So with all of these different faces of suffering, of dukkha, what's needed is awareness to know what's happening. The ability to begin to find a new relationship with not based on identification. You know some of the suffering that we experience I don't see listed in our lists. It's the suffering of not feeling like we belong. It's the suffering of feeling essentially not okay. It's the suffering of not feeling safe. Fundamentally, not feeling safe. It's the suffering of not knowing what kindness is. And so there are particular characteristics of our contemporary society that give rise to these forms of suffering that take a particular way to navigate. You know, trauma is the physiological response to feeling trapped and in mortal danger, and even if that danger was not an actual experience, but a perceived experience of a child who wasn't getting enough nourishment, or enough warmth, or enough positive enforcement, the nervous system has no way of differentiating between perceived danger and actual danger. So the nervous system, it's all the same. So for a child who's repeatedly put down or repeatedly not given positive enforcement, the the nervous system feels as if it's under mortal attack. And that stress is present until it discharges. And what's needed to work with trauma is uh, a, a tremendous skillfulness in working with body sensations, enormous kindness, and continuing to return back to the place where one feels one has ground. And working with some of these other experiences of perpetual lack or emptiness or that sense of not being okay. This requires the, the approach of creating the conditions where that can shift and starting to recognize that this itself is an arising condition that isn't ultimately who one is. It's hard when you're in a place where there's wallpaper to get a sense that there's something behind the wallpaper. And when the only thing that we have known is the sense of lack, or the sense of emptiness, or the sense of not being okay, or not feeling inherently safe, we can't imagine that there is another experience of life. But this is a conditioned experience. It has come because things were a particular way. And as a result, when the conditions change, the experience can change. And so when that's the case, it's particularly helpful to have the idea or the imagination or the sense or the possibility. That the mind can awaken, that we bring our attention to the luminous nature of mind, to the radiant, unconditioned nature of mind. And so when we're dealing with this kind of stuff, what we need to do is rather than focus on the suffering, we need to focus on the inherent beauty and goodness and luminosity we get a sense that that is our nature and this other stuff is just the grey clouds that are keeping me from being able to see it so one of the things that's really important when working with suffering and compassion is to know when to attend and when not to when to move up close and when to back away. So with the suffering of old age and sickness and death and having what we want not having what we want and having what we don't want there are times when it's really helpful to move up close and to feel the suffering that's present in that to see it, to know it, to get a feeling for it, and to find a different way of relating to it. But there's also times when we need to back away and focus on the luminosity, to focus on the radiance, to focus on the goodness, to focus on the ground of well-being, that is our nature, it's our commitment, it's our aspiration, it's our willingness to come on retreat. Whenever we're working with something difficult, we need to do so from a place of resource, not from a place of force or a good idea. The nature of resource so that it has an ease and well-being as its characteristic. It's very different from a good idea. So when we move towards something which is painful or difficult or challenging or agitating from a place of resource, then we can feel it and know it and receive it and soften around any kind of reactivity that comes when we come close. This is particularly true when we're working with trauma, particularly true when we're dealing with this kind of wallpaper experience of feeling this sense of emptiness, not okayness, never safe. Very carefully. Very gently, harnessed to one's own goodness, stopping and backing off, relaxing and renewing, re-establishing ground of well-being and re-engaging. because it takes a lot of skill to do this, it's often very useful to work in close proximity with somebody who understands the territory. So meditation has many values to it. Certainly the capacity to bring compassion to what we're experiencing is one. So, you know, we can check out our experience. Sometimes, you know, we feel peaceful and calm and we feel confident. Sometimes we feel agitated and irritable. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed. Sometimes we feel panicky. You know, these are the kinds of things that we experience, and yet none of them is... um, Exempt from our ability to work with in terms of meditation. So we can work with it in terms of what's actually happening and how we're relating to it. We can work with it in terms of bringing antidotes that balance it. We can work with it in terms of supporting a body that is energized and able to handle it. So I know, sometimes, if I get overtired, I cry easier. So rather than try and figure out why I'm crying, what I need to do is just go to sleep. Or if I get too hungry, I get irritable. And rather than try and sort out the irritation, I just need to eat. So there's a kind of, like, practical application that helps supports giving us ground so that we can navigate the territory that we need to navigate what's alive for us what knocks us out of balance what supports us when we're knocked out of balance reestablishing balance so we had a sister in England who had an incredibly complicated family dynamic and her grandparents were the ones that raised her, and she, they were getting quite elderly and frail. And she wanted to be there for them. But every time she would go and visit her family, she would turn into like a pancake. Just completely lose ground. So I was talking with her, and I said, you don't have the capacity to navigate this by yourself. It's not that you don't want to. You don't have it. Don't go home by yourself. And so from that point on, whenever she went home, she took a friend with her, or a sister with her. And it made an enormous difference because she was able to visit her grandparents and spend time with her family and do so in a way where she wasn't so overwhelmed with complexity that was completely beyond her capacity to navigate, that it would take a week or ten days to recover. You know. So part of the skill is to recognize, well, what are we up against and what is actually needed? And we don't think that bringing somebody home with us to our family is uh, what we need to do in our meditation. That's not our first thought. Our first thought is that we should be able to figure it out by ourselves, on our cushion, alone. <laughs> 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 but there are certain situations where that's not what's happening, you know. And what we need to do is to get with the program of what's happening rather than try and put an idea of what should be happening on top of the reality. And make the reality. And so I've always found, or I continue to find it humbling, and sometimes humiliating, how utterly different is what's actually happening from how I think it should be. And yet, the more responsive I am to that, then the more I'm able to bring attention and care where it's needed. So compassion is the ability to respond to suffering, to move close to it, to stand in the presence, to quiver in the presence of suffering. Compassion is not pity. Pity is something which is completely disempowering of another person. Of course, the far enemy of compassion is cruelty. Doing something which is actually harmful or unkind. And yet, because we have an idea that compassion is good, then sometimes what happens is we, we fabricate what is affectionately referred to as idiot compassion. You know, where we have this idea about what is needed in order to do something which is helpful and it's completely out of our capacity or what's actually useful for the circumstance. So, you know, one of the challenging things about living in a monastery is having to come to the reality that we have limits. We have limits as human beings, we have limits as a community, and as much as we would like to be open and available to everybody, we cannot be. And it's hard saying to people, I'm sorry, it's not going to work for you to stay. Or I'm sorry, you have to go now because it's not working anymore. And yet, if we aren't able to do that, what we do is we burn ourselves out, we frazzle the community, and the community's capacity to take care of its own and everybody else diminishes incredibly. So we also have this idea, well, if I just love them enough, then everything will be okay. If I just put enough love into that person, then it's going to be all right. And there are some people where it's not enough to love them completely. They need other support. And as people who are untrained psychologically, we don't have the skills to give them the support that they need. And so there's a kind of mm, a humility that comes when we realize sometimes as much as I have to give it's not enough. It's not what's needed in order to make it okay. And there's a sadness a grief. And so then the priority needs to be okay, well what can I give? What do I have to offer? What is my strength? And then when we come back to that place, then we have ground again. So there are many faces and expressions of suffering, many tools and skills of how to deal with it. There isn't a right way, there isn't a one way. The right way, the one way, is when suffering ends. And the heart is growing stronger and more endowed in its capacity to bear with. That's the right way. That's the one way. More able to accept. More able to understand. More able to bear with that's the one way that's the right way so when we make compassion a priority in our lives what does that look like? when we make it a priority to respond to our own suffering with compassion what does that look like? what does that feel like? When we do that for ourselves, what happens in our ability to support others? Practice has to be here before we can extend it outwards. We have got to have ground. We have to have something before we can give it away. And so it isn't easy sitting with a mind and a body you know, and after a few days, the aches increase, the tensions increase, the body gets tight. We spend a lot of hours sitting. And yet, you know, oftentimes what's happening is, is that this is actually the way the body naturally is, but because of the level of distractions that we have, we don't attend to it. We don't know it. We don't recognize it so we keep moving as a kind of distraction rather than being present with some of the underlying realities of how things are and yet when we learn to soften with it, when we learn to take care, when we learn to energize and move the body in a way that supports what does that feel like? when we not have to be on the move in order to be comfortable so one of the blessings of practicing in this way is it increases our capacity just to relax in our own skin. To feel that connection with our own goodness. Things are okay enough. Our own goodness and that sense of things are okay enough gives us ground, capacity to open up to stuff that requires more strength, more perseverance, more skill, more resource. The more compassion that we have, the more we're able to open to what is. The more we're able to open to what is, the more capacity we have. So the same with the insight dialogue instructions. Pause, relax, and Open. That's the path, really. Take stock of what's happening. Relax and open to the truth of the way things are, inwardly and around. So I'll stop here for the evening reflection. Thank you for listening.